Hey, you sound pretty good. <laughs> I sound I sound a little bit better. A uh, little, little, little vocal fry. Little, little, little vocal fry. Little vocal fry. A little, uh, little less Tom Waits. A little more uh, Kathleen Turner. Ah, <laughs> yes. I think that's uh, yeah, I think that's where I'm at. Um, I I currently sound worse than I feel, which is a good thing, I guess. If oh, you, yeah, well, because because you know the podcast is all about the feels. Like you got to feel it. I'm feeling it. You know what I'm, I'm saying? Um, just like uh, my, one of my favorite movies from the from the 80s or 90s, uh, White Men Can't Jump. Um, I think it's uh, it doesn't matter how you play, but how good you look while you're doing it or something. So I, <laughs> I look good. I feel good. I just might not sound great. Well, it depends. If you if you're into vocal fry, uh, you know. I mean, you I'm could, into French could... fry. I'm very, <laughs> I'm very, I'm I'm probably too much into French fry. That could be a problem. I've never been to a fish fry. Uh, oh, you've never been to a fish fry? Uh, you know, I don't think it's my thing. I mean, oh. I like fried fish, but I think like a fish fry as an event, like uh, like a pancake breakfast, yeah. Or, or yeah, I'm, I'm not. It's not not really not really my scene, huh? <laughs> it's not. I've, I've been I've I've been to the occasional uh, fish fry. Uh, they uh, you know that's a it's a popular uh, fundraising thing in in scouting or at least in in this, uh, this neck of the woods it is. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Would, but it's, now, it's disgusting though. I mean, it's like I right, can I, right. I like fried I, like I love fish and chips, but boy, I cannot eat fish and chips. It makes just makes me feel gross if I eat too much. So it's not it's not one of those things that fits in the all you can eat bucket. Right. Like it's not, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not chicken wings. It's not, it's not pizza. Like I can eat a lot of those things. And by the end of it, I'm like, Oh, I'm just, I'm just full. I'm not sick of it. I've never thought, man, I wish I could just eat more fish. Just please, please more fried fish. I'm good with one or two pieces. I don't need five. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Now that we're down. Like so there's so much, there's so much that uh, we could link to that. I, and I've just been, I've uh, been rolling with it and I have nothing in my Skype. So, uh, oh, in wow. my in my in my safari to save. So, uh, we got we got we got Kathleen Turner. We got uh, Tom Waits. <laughs> we got Fish Fry. I mean, <laughs> we got a, there. We go. We've hit enough. Uh, those our show notes are done. We, okay, <laughs> I think we can call this a show. We've we've filled up the, the notes page. Well, no, um, well, that's my whole point. Is we haven't because I haven't I haven't opened uh, anything in Safari. <laughs> um. All right. So I, I don't want to leave Fish Fry. So oh, what all right. <laughs> what kind of fish are you, are we talking about here? You, I mean there's not a lot of you know, I, I don't think anybody's frying salmon. So is this like a it's like a catfish? Is it uh it's a white fish of well, some sort? I think it depends if you're a southerner or if you're a Yankee. If you're a Yankee, uh it's cod. Because it's cod. that's the only yeah. kind of fish. If you if you are a southerner, um then it's catfish. Do we have um is there still cod? I remember when I was growing up. Is there still cod? That there's no cod left. Um, that the in Newfoundland, uh, there's uh, there there was like a cod shortage. The, well, we've overfished the cod. So I I just I just googled no cod left because that's what you do. And uh, the first hit is an article from the Atlantic from uh, 2012. There are just 100 fully grown cod left in the North Sea. So that's it. We've only got the 100 left. Cod, cod fishing. Here we go. Cod fishing in Newfoundland. Uh, um, in the where is it? After a ten-year moratorium on fishing began in uh, 1992, owing to overfishing and debatably greed, lack of foresight in local port administration, by '93, six cod populations had collapsed. 
Um, and uh, yeah, so however, by 2011, became apparent that the fisheries were returning to their original abundance just more slowly than had been anticipated. So we were, so we're back into cod. We're back. We're, we've got lots of cod now. Well, but not, not according up, to this article from the Atlantic from 2012. There's only a hundred hundred co- adult cod left in the North Sea. Well, don't eat. So maybe what's happening? This this is where we link it to food safety talk. Maybe there's some fish fraud going on. Maybe this is uh, <laughs> people say, "Hey, come to our cod cod uh, fish fry," and they're really just uh, uh, serving tilapia. Could be. Could be. Oh, uh, well, anyway. So, all right. I've had. Uh, um, we had a, a, a two days that we didn't record because I sounded like uh, Tom Waits and, and a little bit like Kathleen Turner now. Um, not in a good I, way. <laughs> not a good way. And now I'm back uh, back, back to uh, normal schedule. I didn't leave my house really for, for two full days. Um, and that's, in other words, that's Tuesday for me. It's Tuesday. Yeah. yeah it's Tuesday and Wednesday. I did a, I pulled a dawn Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, so much so that when my kid came home yesterday, uh, Jack came home from school, uh, he takes the bus home and he said, Oh, no one's car is here. I thought, I, you know, I thought no one was home because sometimes we, t- you know, someone's at work and another kid's going to hockey. So he, he often comes home. And then for 20 minutes, he's he's on his own, and then we FaceTime, um, and which was which shocked both Danny and I, who were both home, and we're like, "What? Why are our cars not there?" So for 30 seconds, we thought that maybe our cars had been stolen right out of our driveway. Oh my god! And and then um, so we sent him back outside to confirm that our cars had been <laughs> had been stolen, and he said, "Oh no, I just didn't see them in the first place." <laughs> I guess I guess I just I just walked right by them and your cars are there. But there is a lot of cars. <laughs> you missed so nothing. So let's be clear. Yeah. This is your older son. The yeah, the smart one. And, and well, let's, <laughs> let's 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 not get too let's not let not hone in too much on that. Um because you know they could listen to this later. But oh, so oh, your 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 older son completely did not see not one car, but two cars. Two cars. When and, he walked and, into the house. Right, that he walked directly by. That he he has to walk down our driveway, past the two cars to enter our house, um, and and the, it's not like we have a couple of Austin Minis or Fiat <laughs> or, or, or a windy driveway with lots wind- of trees. Nope. Yeah, nope. none of those things. There was no way that they could have been covered in leaves. Yeah, yeah. We have a minivan yeah. and a Honda CRV, which are quite. Uh, I I mean, they're not they're not like. Hummer, Land Rover, large, but they're definitely not what someone would call a small vehicle, and and they're not and they're not like camo colored. <laughs> no, no, they're they're Regular both car colored. Uh, one is black, so I, I could see how that you know maybe fades into the at, at night to the dark forest that we have, and then one is silver. So yeah, I don't know, I don't know. So so anyway, that was um, uh, I I still until this morning did not had not gone outside and uh, did confirm that our cars had not been stolen and I was able to drive my car uh, to, to the to the podcast. Um, nice. Yeah. So so anyway, I'm back uh, back to normal. We are we are gearing up for um, uh, our ribbon cutting event for our kitchens, the uh, Dina Igor. Uh, teaching and research kitchens, uh, which I've mentioned on the the episode, uh, the kitchen episode that we had. Um, 
so Friday evening we have a big event. So there's um, there's a lot of a lot of scrambling around uh, to make sure everything is is in order. And we've got um, some AV stuff that's being straightened around. I on my to do list today, Don. After we finish the this podcast, I have to level a couple of refrigerators, and I need to um, fix uh, a dishwasher. Um, well. I shouldn't say fix a dishwasher. And this this only comes from, I think, my experience in the dish pit um, when I learned about food safety from a, uh, a dishwasher's perspective. Um, I am charged with following the manufacturer's instructions on how to uh, hook up the wires for the onboard heater for our uh, dishwasher. Um, and uh, I'm, I would say I'm... I'm like 70% confident that I'm going to be able to do it. Um, so this, uh, this dishwasher unit um, comes from a, a company called Noble, and they are extremely noble when it comes to their customer service. Um, it was uh, installed by uh, our plumber and uh, electrician, but since the wiring that needs to be done is inside the unit, it now falls upon the owner of the unit, not the contractor that installs it, or the, voyante- the warranty be voided. Really? So, yeah, yeah. So, so there are two two things. One is, um, I we can call a technician to do it, um, and I have a number for a technician if everything falls apart uh, for me today. Or um, my 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 friend at Noble, um, Amanda, um, uh, gave me some step by step instructions on how to open up a panel and connect an orange wire and a black wire and <laughs> run it three times, and and then I think. Um, uh, hope, uh, that it all, that it all works out. So that's, uh, after the podcast is done today, I'm, I'm going to, uh, hook up the, uh, the heating wires to the thermostat board. It seems that seems a little uh, ridiculous that you work at a big university mm-hmm. and you and you, the guy with the PhD who understands about food safety, um, has to do that, but whatever. I mean, yeah, I, I, I hear you. I, but let me, let me tell you. Um, if, if I, if I didn't do it today and this is assuming by the time this is posted, we'll know that the dishwasher works or not. If I didn't do it, I I feel like it would be three weeks from now, um, before it would actually be done. And yeah, no, I, I also, since I also work at a university, I completely understand. Like I, I mean, I just do stuff that is, you know, way be- be- beneath my pay grade, you know, right, and, I, right. and, I'm, and I'm happy to do it because otherwise it doesn't get done. And also, apparently, we've been asked, this was quite some time ago, and I'm still angry about it, um, we were asked to um, please break down any cardboard boxes before uh, putting them out for the custodial staff. Um, and my response to that was, well, that would be great. Um, maybe they could come and help me edit some manuscripts, um, <laughs> you know, before I do that job for them, uh, you know, and, and again, I, whatever. I mean, it's uh, what I'll, what I'll do is I just take the cardboard boxes down and just throw them right in the dumpster without even breaking them down. Cause that's just how I roll. Right. Cause, right. Cause and they don't really care. No, exactly. Uh, so, so just to, just yeah. to close the loop here, uh, the, the episode where we talked about, uh, your kitchen installation was 172, uh, entitled math was hard. And, uh, the first link is the, uh, dire straits money for nothing, uh, music video, um, which also was flashing in my head as you were talking about installing, uh, refrigerators. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Perfect. Perfect. For, yes. Um, uh, I, and it'll be, I'll, I'll tell you, it's already paid off in, 
um, in spades and aces. I don't know what the, the right cliche is. Um, the, the amount of uh, time and dedication that not, you know, not just me, but our whole teams put into it, it's starting to, um, it, we're, we're getting to the end and, and time is freeing up. Um, because of that, because now we're just like tidying up all the loose ends and making sure everything's perfect for this event that we have. And then, um, next week we start, we're going to start piloting one of our projects, um, in it, um, and, you know, getting our, uh, learning all of the, the equipment and how we're recording things and, um, just doing, you know, getting, getting to the science. Um, and then the, the plan is to have a whole bunch of, uh, sort of show and tells, uh, for people who might be interested in working with us on, on projects. So it's, it, you know, we're, we're at the point of like, okay, we got, we're, we're checking this off and then we're getting to the, to the real fun stuff of getting to use it. Um, but, uh, the, the segue I wanted to make, uh, with this was, uh, so the last two days I was banished from, from the kitchens cause no one, um, wanted me to bring my sickness, uh, to, to my building. Um, so I spent two days at home and, um, tried to, to, um, sort of, uh, plan and work on some of the, the AV stuff and presentation stuff from, from afar and FaceTimed in and called in, but I had some, some other times. So what I did and wait, I text, wait, 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 did oh, you, oh. did you spark joy, Ben? <laughs> oh my gosh, Don, I sparked so, I sparked so much joy. I, th- this is, um, th- this is a big, this is a big deal for me. So I, I, I've been listening to a couple of podcasts and, um, reread, um, uh, getting things done, which by the way, I don't know if I've mentioned this, uh, um, recently on, on the podcast, but did you might not even remember this, but, but do you know that you gave me my copy the, of getting things done? Do, do you know, like we had talked about it on one of the earlier podcasts really, really early. And then, uh, then, uh, like a little gift, a little treat showed up at my door and it was a uh, getting things done that you had sent me. Yeah. So it, for, for a while I bought these books and I gave them away. Um, I have since uh, lost enthusiasm for that, but I'm glad, uh, I'm glad to have done that. So yes. Yeah. I'm glad you did too. Cause I, it, it is, I, I've read it. I read it the first time when you sent it to me, I've, I've gone back a couple of times to, um, to, to get some inspiration. And then I reread it over the last, I don't know, two or three weeks in between uh, a couple other books. Um, and, um, and then with the, um, the, uh, what I think the Netflix show is called tidying up, which everyone on social media has been talking about. Um, the Marie Kondo, uh, approach that, uh, my, my, the lovely Danny, my wife, uh, has taken to our, our house. Um, I did the same thing for my, my email and, uh, I just, I, I you got rid of all of the email that didn't spark joy, which was I basically got, all of the email. I did. I really did. And, <laughs> Um, I, I don't know, something that, that Merlin mentioned on one of his podcasts and I don't know which one it was, and it might've been around the same time as they had talked about either rereading, getting things done or the tidying up, uh, episode of Dubai Friday or something that he said to John Roderick. I don't know. It was uh, some inspiration of like, like the, and I'll paraphrase this. Uh, and basically I know, and he knows, and you know, and everybody sent me an email knows that if I, that I'm not going back to read them or do anything with them. So I just archived all of them and started fresh instead of seeing the little red sign in my email box that said, 
like, and literally at, at one point, like 26,740. Um, I, I now have a little red, um, indicator on my phone and on my desktop that says three. Nice. Um, and now it's two. Um, so I'm, I'm really, uh, uh, and, and my inbox has been cleaned right out. I spent some, I, I, I dedicated some time to this and, um, really started, uh, focusing on, uh, if e- either don't read emails, and this is something that Merlin said a long time ago, why would I read an email four times? If I'm exactly. going to do it, I'm going to do it. Like, like let's, let, let me plan on here are times that I'm going to do email, I, I, if I open it up, I better do something with it. I better archive it or delete it or move it somewhere where I'm actually going to do something with it. But, but there's no point in me looking at it multiple times and just thinking, Oh, I should do something about that. Yep. Yep. So exactly. Well, and for me, unfortunately, what happens is it stays there a couple of times and then I'm like, well, I'm not going to do anything about this right now. So I'm going to move it to OmniFocus and then, and then that's where the dumpster fire starts. So I'm, you know, and so I am, I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm great at, uh, telling people about this stuff. I am not as good about doing it. And and it goes in, it goes in, in stages, right? Like I do, I do, sometimes I do better than other times, but, uh, but yeah. So, and we will, I'll find, uh, if you have not, I mean, Ben, there's, there's someone, there's someone born every day who has not heard Merlin's uh, comment about the Flintstones, um, which would be relevant to, um, uh, his inbox zero talk. So we will, right. we will link to his inbox zero talk on 43 folders, uh, which is a website that is still exists that he uh, used to run. And, uh, yeah. And, and speak just again, to close the loop, uh, I met the same, the same week or the same month I met both, uh, Merlin Mann and David Allen. And so, yeah, that was a, that was some time ago, but I went, uh, here at, uh, David Allen, um, seminar and I went to, I can tell you exactly when it is. Cause I got the poster right here in my office. I went to see, uh, the monsters of podcasting and, and the, the sound of young America in, uh, New York city in, uh, 2009. So that was, and that was when I met, uh, Merlin for the first time. Well, that's awesome. Um, I think we should also link to the talk that he gave at, uh, at Rutgers. Rutgers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, uh, time and attention talk, because I, I also, um, try to employ this as much as, as much as possible. Um, and it it is, well, you and I exchanged a couple of texts on this yesterday when I was like, look, I just archived everything. Um, I am moving everything to, uh, out of my inbox. I'm starting, starting fresh. And, um, we, we exchanged a couple of texts about, about time and, it made me think about time and attention again, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the more, the more time that I can dedicate to, um, just, just purposeful time in small blocks to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do some email right now. I'm going to get my, my, uh, and, and by do email, I mean, I'm going to process what's there. I need to dedicate some time to, to plan when I will do the tasks that are, that are coming out of those, those, that, that email or those, those messages or new things that I want to do. Um, and it is all about dedicate, like being able to Island off time within a day or a week to, to do that kind of stuff because it, without it, it, you and you and I are not unique. You all of our time gets, gets eaten up. Like people will take it and we will fill it if we don't, um, if we don't block some of this, this time out to do, to do the things that, that we need to do to be more focused and, and productive. And, and I'm, yeah, I, I, I'm really, 
Um, I'm really trying to, to do that. So time and attention. Cool. Well, good, good. It's, uh, it's, it's good. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a good time of year to do that. It's not about new year's uh, resolutions per se, but, uh, yeah, anytime you can, you dump a whole bunch of stuff that you're not going to do anything with. It's, it's very freeing. It is. And, and uh, the the whole concept of sparking joy is, (laughs) is is alongside of this. And I, I think about it in the same way. Um, we've talked a little bit in the past about, um, you know, doing, doing things as, as academics. And, and I don't, I don't even want to pretend this is an act, like just an academic thing. Um, I, I think, you know, many of us get, get asked to do things and our, our nature is, um, that we want, we want to be able to do these things. We want to be able to help. Someone calls up and says, Hey, I have a question about this, or I'd like to create this new product. How can, what, what can you, what can you help me with? Or, um, I don't know where to start my, I, I think, you know, uh, the, the, the Venn diagram of folks like us that are in extension that, that work with the public to answer their food safety questions. I think the, the answer is always kind of like, yeah, I want to, I want to do this. Um, and the, the, the real question that I've been asking myself recently is how will this spark joy in my day? <laughs> Excuse me. I should use the cough button for that. Um, but, uh, what, what is it? How, how much time can I, can I dedicate this? And is this something that I, that, that I feel like I need to do? Is it something that, that fits into my responsibility? Is there someone else that might be able to, to do this? And, and is it something that I'm going to, going to, um, get, in enjoyment about or out of and not dread. And, um, and, and, and that's a, I think that's a hard decision or a hard discussion sometimes. And, um, I, you know, we, we talked in the last episode about, um, helping out, um, new scientists or people that are interested in science, uh, high school students. And that's one that no matter who emails me, or calls and says, Hey, can we talk about a high school project? That one sparks joy for me. So I'm going to do, I'm going to do that. I, I may do less of someone who says, and I'll um, tell you one of the emails that I received as we've started the podcast, food recall a story on deadline. I'm a food writer with XXX. I'm doing a story on chicken nugget recalls this morning. Are you able to jump on the line briefly or send through a few quick quotes on how to tell if your chicken is contaminated? And my, my answer is I, here's the time that I can do it right now. That one's not sparking joy in my heart because mm-hmm. we have a, we got a, we got a podcast and I got this which, well, which, which totally sparks joy, right? Like that, the Does. podcast is something that, that I definitely want to do. And, and, you know, one thing that has helped me and I got a couple of things I want to, I want to close a loop on and then, and then just a brief riff on <clears throat> being productive with email. One of the things that has helped me be tremendously productive with email is, uh, going to, uh, either using my voice to send emails on the phone to dictate emails or, uh, drag and dictate on the desktop to dictate emails. And it's just, it just reduces friction enough so that I can bang out a really nice, well thought out reply that, May, you know, may have some typos in it. It may have some words that are not the right words. It may, uh, and ho- fortunately, this hasn't happened too often. It may have in the middle of the email. It may have some weird thing like like Bianca, stop doing that, <laughs> right? Where I talk to my dog, uh, but I but I don't realize that I've got voice dictation on, and sometimes I don't <laughs> catch that. Um, fortunately, nothing too terribly uh, embarrassing. So. Um, 
The other thing I want to mention is the Dubai Friday episode where they talked about Sparking Joy, which has an amazing episode title. That episode is entitled Fantastic Beasts and Where They Urinate. Um, <laughs> and in that, uh, Merlin talks about, he, he's not particularly a fan of Marie Kondo, uh, but he is a fan of another book, which he mentioned, which I would like to mention here as well, and that is uh, the book It's All Too Much by Peter Walsh, and, and Mer- Merlin has said, and you can listen to him say this on, on uh, Fantastic Beasts, but... Um, he basically says he finds uh, Peter Walsh's approach much more useful than uh, Marie Kondo's approach for getting rid of stuff. So anyway, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, have you read that book? Do you know? I own a copy of It's All Too Much. Um, and I think I might've, <laughs> have you signed started, book? I've started to read it. Maybe. <laughs> I don't really remember. I don't, I don't, I don't read books anymore, Ben. It's really, it's bad. I have uh, Kindle books that I haven't read. Um, uh, although I did, I did finish, Proof of collusion. Um, uh, spoiler alert, I think there's collusion. Um, <laughs> there's, proof, there's proof. It's there's, at the end. Yeah, exactly. Gotta wait till the end, but it's, it's there. <laughs> I think it's pretty much from the first, it's like the first chapter. It's like, okay, uh, you got me. I, I'm, I'm sold. So anyway, but yeah, and I, I would say definitely follow um, Seth Abramson, who's the author of Proof of Collusion. Uh, follow him on Twitter because, uh, boy, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of collusion going on. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I have a lot of books that I haven't read. I've tried to stop. I've gone from buying uh, hardcover books and paperback books that I don't read to buying books on my Kindle that I don't read. So that, I think that's a, net, that's a net positive movement because they're only on my Kindle and they're much lighter. Um, <laughs> but but I, still, yeah. I still have trouble making time to read books. So, uh, but that, and I think we talked about that on our recent episode. Yeah. Yep. And uh, it's, uh, it, I mean, there's a, it's a time and attention thing, right? Yeah. I, it all, it, it, it really does come back to that, to that, um, uh, you know, I think Merlin's tenet of is this, uh, well, and there's a great quote in, in, um, Parks and Rec that, um, Natalie Seymour, who, uh, an ex- um, extension associate who, who works, uh, in my program, um, uses all the time, uh, mainly in relation to me and, and trying to like not you know, do too much, um, or overcommit to things. Um, and it's a, a Ron Swanson quote, which is, it's always better to, I'll probably butcher this. It's always better to full ass something than to half ass two things. And yeah, and I, and I, it's true. It, that's a, that's a time and attention thing, right? It's, it's, if I can, if I can dedicate, if I can really focus on tasks for, um, for a set amount of time, I'm going to, I'm going to have a better product. I'm going to feel better about it, um, at the end. And, um, and it's, I, I, I'm continuously thinking that it's okay if certain things don't, um, don't get that time and attention, especially if I can figure that out upfront. If I can, you know, I think the worst, worst case scenario for me is being like, yeah, I can do that. I'm going to do that later. I will definitely do that. I really want to do it. And then not being able to follow through with it. So trying to recognize that it's almost like the same thing with, with writing buddies, as we've talked about in, in the past, just being able to, to predict and plan and set a goal, um, without just being like, yeah, I'm going to write 15 papers this month. I'm totally going to do that. Just being realistic. Yeah. And so we will, uh, um, so, so it's actually pretty easy to find that Ron Swanson, uh, quote. Um, there's actually a, a coffee mug, uh, that has it. And the mug says, I never half ass two things, whole ass one thing. There you go. See, I, I, I like it. Um, all right. So we, uh, should we move on to the, should we, oh, should we start oh, the show? <laughs> well, we should, maybe we should start. I got one more thing. Sure. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> are you, are you maxing wait, me? Wait. Are you maxing yeah, me? Yeah, I just, 
I'm just maxing you right now. Uh, just, just one more thing. Uh, I, I don't think I mentioned this in the last episode cause I don't think I'd started watching it, but go watch Shit's Creek. It's S C H I T T not, uh, not, not the uh, curse word that will give us a explicit tag. Um, it is a Canadian produced show that is oh, on Netflix. Eugene Levy. Oh my yeah. gosh. Don, Kristen will love it. Okay. You will love it. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we, we are a big fan of uh, of, of uh, all of those. Um, uh, who's the guy? Uh, uh, Chris, uh, yes, Christopher, Christopher Guest. Guest. Yeah. Yeah. So this is in the same vein of, as Christopher Guest. And I'll, I'll, I'll spoiler alert. Um, uh, he, uh, uh, Eugene Levy's son, Daniel Levy. No. Yeah, yeah. Daniel Levy plays his son in the show, David. Mm. Da- David is the greatest character of all time. Um, I'm falling in love with this show. He is phenomenal. There are certain things that are very Canadian about it. Um, but they, they really try to do a good job of making it like, you don't know where they live or where this is, but it looks like Ontario. The, some of the accents are very, very much Canadian. Um, the it's, there, there's some nostalgia to it. And um, the lovely Danielle, uh, turned me onto the show. She was listening to a podcast. Someone said, you should watch this popped up on, on Netflix. And then, um, over the course of a couple of days when I was doing some other things, she ran through like the first two seasons of it, um, in the background and then has gone back to rewatch them with me, which she never does. Um, so that if that can attest to anything, she's, uh, um, it, it is, it is a really, it's a great show and they're short episodes, 21, 22 minute episodes. It's great. You go, go watch it. Yeah. So it was already on my Netflix, uh, uh list, which I found out when I clicked my list and then it, it went away and it said, do you want to add this to your list? So, so it was already on our list. So you must have recommended it before. Um, and uh, yeah, we should watch it. We Right now, we are not on uh, uh, watching stuff on Netflix because we have bought uh, BritBox, a subscription to BritBox, which is uh, basically another British thing that we can spend money on. And we, we've been watching a bunch of different things. Uh, Shetland, which uh, I think I mentioned before, which is set on the Isle of Shetland. We finished watching those. We're now watching the newest uh, season, I think, of Vera. Uh, which is set in Northumberland, which is you know the Geordie country uh, favorite favorite uh, British accent is from there, and then also um, QI, which is the a nominal quiz show um, Stephen Fry uh, hosted and then uh, switched to Sandy uh, Tosvig hosting, uh, which is just basically an excuse for people to, to say funny things with British accents. So. <laughs> Fantastic. So, um, so basically you're watching a bunch of shows with uh, sullen looking people standing in front of gray backgrounds. Um, well, yeah. And QI, which, which and QI. Yeah. yeah. And there's a murder somewhere. Oh, there's only so, always a murder. They're real. And, so, yeah, it's uh, and uh, yeah. So anyway, it's been uh, yeah. So that's what we're watching right now. But 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 yes, Schitt's Creek, uh, which is not a profanity. Um, it looks fantastic. It is. It's really good. Is is BritBox the new um, Acorn? It is. It is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so do you still have the you still have Acorn? We're still paying for Acorn. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. <laughs> It's fine. <laughs> it's great. I like. I love this. This is this is one of my on my favorite bits. It's a it's a bit. It's um, Don and Kristen watching British TV, which is uh, the irony is hilarious because this is all my parents watch as well. Um, and uh, so yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's talk. Uh, let's talk some food safety stuff. Um, yeah. There we. I mean, we have a ton of we have a ton of follow up and um, and feedback uh, to talk about. Um, I guess maybe, um, the first place to talk about 
would be oh, let's well, see. Let's so this is relates to the kitchen stuff. So let's let's oh. do uh, let's do this uh, question from um, uh, listener uh, Deep Almond. Uh, listener writes: uh, the risks associated with eating raw flour has been mentioned several times on your podcast. Does raw f- almond flour pose the same risk? Is there a different or additional risk because it's made from tree nuts instead of from grain? Um, and then the question goes on from there. Um, I would say that I know that almonds from California all need to be given a four log reduction. I am not sure what the rules are regarding almond flour. Um, it may Almond flour may have to be made from almonds that have also been given a four log reduction, assuming the almonds were sourced from California. Um, uh, but I would say that the risk is gen- absent that four log reduction. The risk would, I would say would be generally the same as wheat flour. Um, and then again, I, I use this opportunity to re- respond to the listener talking about the work that we've been doing with heating wheat flour in a consumer style uh, toaster oven. Um, uh, as per the YouTube video, and it turns out that you actually do get um, about a five log reduction um, at 375 um, in, with a two centimeter thick uh, layer. We're still working on like what's going on with that because the the, the temperature in the middle of that is not nearly up to to uh, you know the temperatures you would expect to inactivate salmonella in in a dry matrix. But uh, the 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 issue is that if in an, in a flat layer like that, the the top and the bottom get very very hot. So. Um, yeah. And then, and then as a, as a follow-up to that, um, uh, the listener, Deep Almond, goes on to ask, um, I, uh, I'm especially fascinated with what Ben hopes to accomplish by observing consumer practices, and this is the, this is the link to what we were talking about, yeah. in the new kitchen. Also, employee practices in restaurants and other food industries is very interesting. Does this particular area of study have a name? And I would say it's something like observational or behavioral food safety, but what, what would you – so number one, do you have any comment on almond flour? And number two, what, what do you call what you do? Yeah, so I do have a comment on almond flour, and I and um, hoping for some uh, real time uh, follow, follow up uh, during the show. I just texted uh, the, our friend of the our, show, Linda Harris. Yeah, friend of the show, Linda Harris, um, uh, with a question of, do you know if almond flour needs to be made from heat treated almonds? Because I would be surprised if it does. And the the reason why I say that is because um, we we don't have any like there's no heat treatment in um, in wheat flour. And I, my, my guess is that the flour industry or the, the almond flour industry probably isn't looking at, at their flour as a, um, uh, they're looking at it as an ingredient, not as a, a, a yeah. yeah, as a ready food. So, so I don't think I, my, my guess is it is not, but I don't know. So that's, um, that's that hopefully Linda will, uh, will wake up cause she's on the West coast. She's up by uh, now, she's but up, yeah. Uh, but we'll, uh, get back to us, uh, here because I, I would, yeah, I would guess that we, there, there are similar risks. Um, that, but I think the difference is probably in pathogen. So for, for whatever reason on, on the wheat, wheat flour, we're looking at, um, uh, in many of the outbreaks, many of the recalls have been non 0157, um, uh, sugar toxin producing E. coli's and in, in almonds, we're really looking at uh, a few different types of uh, a salmonella, and so I mean, the process and, and the end is is not, um, it, you know, it's going to be it's going to be similar to um, 
to get to reduce risk for that flower product. But I, I think we're looking at different at a different pathogen. Well, yes, but there have been flower outbreaks linked to salmonella, and actually, um, there's a General Mills recall going on right now true, true. for salmonella in uh, in flour. So, um, and I guess the, and in related news, I've been working on a flower risk assessment for um, you know a, a big company whose name you would recognize, and I gave uh, what was the the essentially the final report. Um, and they're interested in doing more work. So you may hear more from me uh, as we move to eventually, hopefully eventually a peer reviewed publication. But it's a, it's really an interesting, um, it's really an interesting system to study. And it's a relatively straightforward, but there's also, because it's not, it's not historically a food that we've worried about for food safety. There's still a lot of unanswered questions about it. So anyway, so, but, but I'm, I was, that was my big, um, sparking joy thing to do this week was to finish off that project, um, you know, by the deadline and, and kind of get a, some deliverables to, to the, the company, because, uh, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. And I, and we're going to, we're obviously, we're going to continue doing work with dry foods, um, in my lab, because we've got a bunch of things started, uh, by, by my uh, postdoc who's, who's now moved to Linda's lab. Oh, um, well, uh, so, uh, but yeah, it's it's really an interesting area. So so on that, and you know, you probably can't answer a whole bunch of questions on this. But when you looked at that risk assessment, did you um, you? I assume you looked at a bunch of different pathogens, and B in my as a kind of a follow up uh, uh, question to this, um, would you would you say that salmonella is equally as important as other? Uh, as uh, you know, non-pathogenic or as uh, pathogenic E. coli. That's a really good question, um, and it, of course, it depends, and it's complicated, right? Um, but but the- I'm here. I'm here for a while. We got a lot more me. listener feedback, yeah, um, yeah. but it's okay. Um, yeah. So. Um, so salmonella seem so we don't have a lot of data on survival of these organisms. Okay, um, uh, Francisco Diaz Gonzalez's lab published some stuff in AEM recently, uh, and we have uh, survival rates for. Uh, pathogenic E. coli. My lab is doing some work right now, unpublished, but we're collecting data on survival of salmonella, a couple, two strains of salmonella and some surrogates. Salmonella seems to survive better than E. coli. So, so that sort of puts a, a, a yep. you know, a mark in the salmonella camp. Um, on the other hand, the dose response functions are different. I haven't looked at them side by side to know how different, but then you also have to consider prevalence and concentration. So let's say right, E. coli right. dies faster, but is more likely to be prevalent. And I'm just speculating here. I don't know this because that's the, that's the problem is we don't, I, I think probably salmonella is probably more likely to be there than E. coli. And again, there's some unpublished data floating around out there that I, that I can't talk about. And that honestly, I wouldn't talk about because I don't remember what's in it, but, but there's, but there's data out there on that. And that would need to be factored into it as well. The other really interesting thing is there are, so CDC published on, with the big um, General Mills outbreak uh, a number of years ago, CDC published some data that um, basically showing when uh, onset dates for illnesses. And if you go under the, uh, the idea that, well, that was all released to the market at once, and then if you go under the assumption that 
consumption of flour is is basically takes place at a uniform rate over over time, and then you try to back out the survival rate of what the organisms would have to have been in that flour because I did this analysis recently. Um, the survival rate that the outbreak pattern predicts shows a much more significant survival rate than the experimental data, right? Which is which is kind of a head scratcher, and we don't know what's going on there. Is so, that? Yeah. Is that so? Is that pathogen um, independent? Well, no. The outbreak. Well, so the outbreak was E. coli. Okay. And Francisco's yeah. data is E. coli. And what I'm saying is, if you and again, it's it's really uh, it's really speculative because there's the problem. As I was explaining to somebody the other day, it's like you remember from algebra two equations with two unknowns. Well, this is like one equation and four unknowns. And so gotcha. when you have that many unknowns. You can plug in multiple values for prevalence and concentration and survival rate and all of them. And then what you try to do, it's a really fun exercise you, if, if you like this kind of thing. You have a spreadsheet with all these numbers and then you, pl- you plug in various numbers and you try to get the, the, the two lines on the graph to match, right? And there's multiple permutations and combinations of those different variables. Like it's not a simple optimization where you just change one number. You can change multiple numbers and, and, and optimize it, right? And so that's that's the that's the, the the challenge with that. And so and again this is all you know my back of the envelope stuff. This has not been peer reviewed. But it it is it's intriguing that at least based on the analysis that I've done, it would suggest a survival the organism has a survival rate that's four times slower than what the peer-reviewed literature would indicate. In other words, if you plug in the, the survival from the peer-reviewed literature, you just can't get an outbreak that lasts that long, right? Huh. Uh, because, e- you know, because again, you, you either have to have such a high dose at the beginning, which would cause way more cases, or you have a low dose at the beginning, in which case the outbreak runs out because, because the organism basically dies off to extinction. So anyway... It would probably is be it, better better explained with a, with a spreadsheet in front of us and a YouTube video, but yeah, it's, so it's complicated. Turns yeah, no, 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 that's that's good. Thank. Well, and so let me bring it back to the sure. to the kitchens to sure. answer yes. the the second part of um, of Deep Almond's question. So what what we hope to accomplish in in these kitchens is helping to fill some of the voids that 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 you have in in your risk assessment and whether it's flour or or something else which is the question of how does this how does a consumer actually interact with this product in in their home what um, we we can do some other work on storage time to to better understand that but we in this case it would be looking at um, how much raw flour gets consumed, makes it to that final plate, uh, how much moves around the kitchen, where does it move when it moves around the kitchen. If we were to make consecutive meals in this kitchen, are we um, and and someone had rolled out a some pizza dough on the um, you know on their on their counter beforehand. Are we what kind of survival do we see um, in that in that environment through the normal course of how people use those use a use a home kitchen? Um, and so I, I agree. I don't think we really have a um, a name for this type of this type of research. It's really just employing. Um, research methods that have been used in other areas and observation being the, the, the biggest one and, and pushing that more into understanding how people interact with food and what that means from a microbiological standpoint. Um, and, and it's the same 
really the same type of thing that that we've uh, employed um, in kitchens, in uh, in restaurants, and in and other food industries. The this is kind of the um, you know Don's Don's niche is let's let's look at math and microbiology together. My niche is let's look at microbiology and what people do, whether that be in their home kitchen or in a restaurant kitchen or in a processing plant, and see how those things interact with one another. Um, and what that, what that means for risk at the end. So, um, you know, I, th- I think you, the, the term that you used Don, of, uh, you know, observational food safety research is, is probably the, the best thing to, to call it, but really that's, that's exactly what, what I'm trying to do. And, and my colleagues are trying to do with these, um, with these facilities is just get a better sense of, of being able to fill some of those unknowns of how much, what, how do people handle flour and how much, if we, if they're going to make, uh, um, you know, bake 60 cookies, how much raw flour might they consume? Uh, and then translate that to 30 or 40 other different types of things that we're interested in. If they're going to make, um, a, a salad that involves a frozen pea, um, that needs to be cooked before, um, will they do that or will they just microwave it or will they slack it? All of those types of things are the things that we're, we're, we're hoping to investigate in the kitchens. Well, and just to give you an example, like there's in, in terms of doing this risk assessment, what I ended up doing was the endpoint was just the concentration of the organism in the flour at the point that the consumer removes it from their pantry. Because guess what? There's some huge unknowns there. And so, and what, but one of the right. things I did to try to, to, to plug that gap is I was at one point sitting in my home kitchen with a dish of flour and touching my fingers to it and then wiping it off until I could get the weight of the flour to go down by a gram because that was the resolution on my scale. And then wow. I tried the same thing with wetting my fingers. And to roughly to get an idea, like how many times would you have to touch flour with wet hands or dry hands to basically per- pull an, a gram of flour uh, you know, onto your fingers? And then there, there is literature on how often people... Um, who are being secretly observed, which gets into what you do, touch their hands to their mouth, right? And so right, the answer, right. that answer, one, there's one piece of literature that says it's eight times an hour. There's another piece of literature that says it's eight times an hour, but it's plus or minus eight uh, based on you know observing multiple people. And so that's actually, so okay, so now we know how often, and we can assume that when people are baking, they act like these other people that, that weren't baking, right, in terms of how many times they touch their, their fingers to their mouth. But what we really don't know is, is how much flour is on their fingers. I got a rough estimate of that but what we also don't know and again if you if I think the industry has done there's no published data on this but the industry has done some work that says that when people are baking how much raw cookie dough do they eat and that ranges from 0 to a little bit to a giant bowl right right and so right, right. and how do you how do you incorporate that into a risk assessment and the answer is not now right if you give me the data we can incorporate it um, but that but that's again so these are all like sort of you know version 2.0 of the risk assessment but at least we've got the major pieces sketched out and we we understand then again like I sort of predicted I, I really think that the the real the real um, the good thing about this is that it's a very long shelf life product, and the longer you keep it on the shelf, um, the safer it's going to be. Also, the good news is the industry is in, in investigating interventions that can be applied in the milling phase, and those and those interventions seem to be rather effective. And so, you know, you can you can look at you know cost effectiveness of this versus let's say holding the product in a warehouse before shipping it. And so, we, and again, we're it's we're we've got 
the good news is we've got an outline. The bad news is it's it's a really um, you know it's a really limited outline, but it's a place to start, and we can start asking these questions. Yeah, yeah. And identifying data gaps, right? Like a hu- huge data gap is what's the consumption of raw cookie dough, and another data gap is how much dough do you spread around the kitchen while you're baking, right? Yep. So yep. yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and those are and you know it, it, it's taken me a, a while to I guess to to mold into this. Those are the exact types of questions that that I want to be answering, right? So it's that to be able to feed these. Um, to collaboratively, collaboratively, oh my gosh, I can't even talk today, um, feed the risk assessment models by answering some of those questions so we can make a better decision on, is this something that we need to control in the consumer kitchen? Is it something that we need to control in milling? Is it something that we need to control at production? And all of it is possible. Where's the, where's the best place to do it? Right. Like, I mean, that that's what these that's what um, models like what you build help us um, to make help us and risk managers make decisions on. Um, so, yeah, it's cool. We uh, you know, we we should do this in a way like more plan from up front. Right. Like like to be able to answer these questions uh uh, to to develop a risk assessment, not just based on um, existing data that you've got to fit in, but to be able to be like, okay, here are the here are the data gaps that we need to to understand at least on the consumer and behavioral side, because I that's what I can help with. Yeah, well, and and what what we the way that we do, and I've explained this a couple times before, but I'll explain it again. The way that we do risk assessment is we say what data is available out there, and then what can we do to do a risk assessment, which is very different from what federal agencies do, uh, because they're constrained by like they have to look at the entire food supply and it has to be right. representative and go through. I mean, my I have to go through peer review, um, but they have to go through you know uh, essentially governmental review, and so what that lets us do is is kind of come up with these sort of clever targeted. Uh, bits of risk assessment that that maybe um, that, you know based on available data and and based on assumptions and, and things like that and it, and they both have value uh, and I would say what we're what we do has value just because it, it just it starts the ball rolling right it doesn't right, finish right. it it doesn't answer it definitively as if anything in science is ever answered definitively but at least it begins to frame the questions so that we know well gosh you know that's a that's actually a pretty significant um, data need and if we if we can you know and here's what it would cost to collect that data and let's let's go do it and let's make the let's make the risk assessment better. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I want to switch. I want to switch gears. Me so too. okay, so we got a we, we got a, a message uh, from someone who we're going to call um, uh, Deep Recipes, um, and it doesn't say anything. It was just a, an email in, but I we the this is the ongoing bit is we like to make uh, make up people's names, um, and so I so the the question is uh, or here's a, a message uh, the message. Um, it's now impossible to dear, dear Dr. Chapman and Dr. Schaffner it is now impossible to enjoy gorgeous cookbooks by my favorite celebrity <laughs> chefs without thinking of you. So here's a recipe for the humble round roast made to perfection by the lovely Nigella Lawson in her 2017 published publication at my table, a celebration of home cooking. Um, and so the, um, the roast top round with caramelized onions. Uh, it, it basically goes. So I'm not going to read the whole recipe, but basically says the best way um, to make sure the meat is cooked how you want it is to use a probe thermometer. And for rare, it should be at 125, and for medium, it should be 140. 
um, and, uh, you know, basically talking about how to, how to do this. Um, there's a note here on, um, re, you know, related to, um, you know, looking to make sure it's, it's well done. You don't want to scorch it. Um, and there, there's a little bit of, um, information on, on, you know, on temperature. Um, and, uh, some probe work may be advisable, uh, is to make sure that it's, if it's not over, overdone. Um, and so, uh, the, uh, deep recipe goes on to say, I continue to enjoy your podcast and the diversity of topics such as the books recently read. So I'm going to, I want to, uh, take this opportunity to not to, I guess, call out someone who is a listener who I'm not going to name, uh, but through OPSEC invited me to be part of a webinar for a, um, a national group to talk about recipe food safety and, um, talk about, a, a, a research project that, um, led by, uh, Katrina Levine who works for, works on my program. Um, and I did a couple of years ago looking at food safety recipes. Um, and so we've talked about this on the, on the podcast. I'm not going to go too much into the details, but I wanted to thank our listener who I'm not going to name for offset reasons for inviting me on. And, um, the listener did a really great job. So, so, um, I was asked to talk about that study. Um, the listener talked about another study, um, uh, that was done by, uh, Sandy Godwin at, um, Tennessee tech, Tennessee state, Tennessee state, Tennessee state university. And, um, uh, talking about if you give consumers good food safety information in recipes, does that have an impact on their behaviors and thermometer use? And, uh, Sandy's work showed absolutely it does. And so, um, the listener talked about that work and said here as a, a group of professionals that are in the food world, like here's what are in cookbooks. And, you know, I talked about that here. If we did a better job, this is what people would do. And she presented that information and said, so let's do a better job at getting this, this info out there, um, in, in cookbooks. And so that, you know, just this message from deep recipe made me think about that, which I did that, that webinar in the last, uh, in the last couple of weeks. Um, so, so yeah, recipes matter. Uh, also there was, um, I have not read the the paper yet. It just came across my email um, this morning. Uh, one of the three that were in there that I haven't um, opened yet. But there was a paper that um, that Jeff Farber, who you and I both know, uh, did also on Canadian cookbooks uh, that was published. I think it's in the January 2019 Food Protection Trends. So um, I'll uh, we'll we'll talk about that uh, in the next episode after I read it. Yeah, I saw that, uh, and of course, I immediately thought of thought of you uh, because Canadian uh, cookbook safety. So, yeah. Yep. Um, so, so speaking of uh, of of cookbook safety and recipe safety, um, uh, basically, Ben, what do you what do you think? Uh, how how often do you get calls from people who say, "Well, I I ate I cooked this food and then I left it on the counter overnight. Um, should I eat it?" Um, All the time, uh, <laughs> I get it more than I want to admit. And, and what, uh, what is your advice, Ben? Um, depends on the food, <laughs> I guess. What about pasta? 
Uh, I would, pa- I would pasta that. that had been left out at room temperature for let's say two several days. days. Yeah, for two days, and then put in the refrigerator afterwards after they remembered it. Yeah, so so I mean, it depends on the food. Um, you and I have talked about um, low risk foods like uh, cheese pizza or pepperoni pizza, where um, the baking process is going to change the water activity of that product, and it's probably okay. And there's lots of microbiological reasons why. If we're looking at a big plate of pasta with um with uh you know sauce and and whatever even if it's not got sauce if it's just a a plate of pasta then uh i would say that you're in a risky kind of situation uh don why is there a specific um public or a a specific pop culture reason why you asked this question right now no i was just reading an old issue of the journal of clinical microbiology from 2011 (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what your what your what your reference is to pop culture. Maybe you can explain. Well, it turns out um, that there was a uh, nifty little YouTube video going around the last couple of days from like Doctor TV or Doctor Somebody, Doctor. Uh, what's it called? Let me pull up this video that we will for sure link to in show notes. Um, oh, Chubby Emu, I think, is the name of the YouTuber. Chubby, chubby emu. You're right. Um, and, uh, a YouTuber who does a lot of stuff on, who's a, I believe is a, is a doctor. Um, and, uh, talks about lots of different, uh, food. So chubby, the last comment that chubby emu uh, posted was a week ago. Happy medical Monday. Quick note in my mitochondrial diagram, it looks like acetyl-CoAcid A initiates glucosogenesis, but it doesn't, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so it's someone who talks about um, uh, medical situations, um, posted this 13-minute long video talking about um, – uh, this, this outbreak, um, and, or uh, not, I wouldn't even say outbreak, this incident that, uh, was covered in lots of news, um, a while ago, back in 2011 when it was, uh, when it was published, but then all of a sudden became a, a whole thing. Like there were 2 million views in the last, um, um, six days on this. Yeah, I try. I tried to watch it. I just found his uh, delivery to be just too um, affected and, and too annoying, so I couldn't actually watch it. Did you watch the whole video? No, no, I didn't watch the whole video. I watched the first like six minutes of it, um, and then it reminded me of. And of course, this is the best place to talk about production value when we do a homemade podcast. <laughs> uh, but it, it reminded me of the uh, children's shows that my kids watch or um, like uh, something that's on Nickelodeon, just the way that it was de- delivered. And maybe that's exactly what um, uh, doc- Dr. Uh, Chubby Emu is going, going for. Um, but yeah, I mean, so so here's the, the thing that there was a whole bunch of uh, social media sharing of not so much the video. I actually took a little bit of digging to find the video, but it got picked up by – the always venerable Fox news and others and became a thing for the last couple of days of, um, that, that went into discussions of how long can you keep foods left over in your fridge, which is not what the video talks about and is not what the incident was about. Um, and, and I'll, I'll give you some, uh, some almost real time, um, feedback. I got an email, uh, um, message last night at, um, at 1030 from someone who works in our FNET program, who's a program assistant who asked a question about that was spurred by this, someone watching this video. Um, the, the question is 
how many days are we able to cook cooked food in the refrigerator? Um, is it different for meats, vegetables, and and pasta? And this question has come up because of a video that someone saw on on YouTube, which which again, this is kind of the the fun part about how um, messages get translated in um, in in media, where the this this had nothing to do with refrigerated stuff except for at the end. So the the incident was hold pasta pasta. Sorry, I have to use my American pronunciation. Uh, hold pasta on your. Um, on your uh, uh, counter for two days, and then refrigerate it for three days. And the, um, uh, the uh, it was a student who ended up um, uh, dying from uh, you know sort of massive bacillus uh, serious um, infection. Yeah, and, and I guess my my question would be like, what was the recipe, and what was the pH, and what was the water activity, right? And then also the the strains that were uh, isolated was it multiple strains? Yeah, multiple yeah. strains. Yeah, so he had uh, three isolates: one from spaghetti and two from a fecal swab, which had different. No, no, same same characteristics. Okay, so anyway, um, are those strains at all uh, psychotrophic, right? Because that we do know that there are strains of bacillus that will grow in the refrigerator. But the key question is, what was the recipe, right? And and if it was pasta with like a little bit of dried tomato sauce, well. That's going to be low water activity and probably low pH from the tomato sauce. But if it was kind of a soupy pasta with high water activity and moderate, moderately, you know, moderate pH, well, yeah, you can you can grow Bacillus cereus and you can grow it pretty pretty darn quickly. Um, but we just don't know any of that, right? But but obviously the the recommendation is like don't don't leave your pasta on the counter overnight. And then if you do keep it in the refrigerator, uh, don't keep it there for very long. And again, I, you know, I was teaching a, a better process control school this earlier or last week, I guess. And, um, somebody was asking me advice about keeping stuff in the fridge. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to give like the answer that I would give on the podcast. I'm going to give the answer that I would give to a consumer, which is, um, uh, basically from the food keeper app, uh, on foodsafety.gov. And I would say, well, whatever they say, that's the recommendation. So uh, let's look at um, uh, fresh pasta. Uh, it says uh, consume within uh, one to two days when stored in the refrigerator. So that's, right, my, right. that's my recommendation. So put it in the fridge within two hours and then consume it within one to two days. The one, the one thing I like, and I, I totally know why you, why, why you go down that, that path. And I think what, what I'm interested in doing is, is trying to for, push that dialogue forward a little bit because the food keeper app, we, we've talked oh, a little bit about yes. this. It's, it's not, it, it takes too many things into consideration and it, it is as much as, um, it's complicated and it depends, becomes a cop out for us sometimes this, that someone going to an app, we can actually do a much better job at it's complicated and depends and say, and say, Oh, you got spaghetti sauce on this pasta. Um, what are you worried about? Are you worried about mold growth? Well, now we're at whatever, one to two days or best quality. But if we're worried about, um, you know, listeria growth, um, you know, obviously it's not going to do anything for the bacillus serious if we're leaving it on the counter. Um, but in, in the refrigerator, really what you have is, is, is seven days. And, and I, I want to have that discussion for, for a couple of reasons, one for the science reason, but, but two, I'm becoming much more in tune around the world of food waste and food disparity and food insecurity, where I don't really want to make a decision for someone who doesn't have food, right? And if we 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 are uh, you know sometimes and that's I don't 
um, that's not what I'm saying about your your question that that you got a better process control school. I think we just need to do a better job in the science community working with with USDA, foodsafety.gov, um, the the people that that develop the messages on on this to to talk to be able to parse out quality versus safety. These are the things that are gonna that that are gonna Im- impact the best tasting pasta. And these are the things that are going to impact the pasta that's going to that, that that can increase your risk of foodborne illness, um, and and that's not us that like that that's a career goal, right? Like that's not something that that I think you and I are going to be able to turn in the next couple of years. But that I mean, essentially, where this email message went back to to my my FNEP colleague was: look, here's what you're part of a USDA program. As an FNET PA, you have you're following the rules of of USDA, and that's you know three to four days for leftovers in a refrigerator for cooked meats and and cooked vegetables, you know, the, and the four day throwaway from a from a uh, food safety science side of things. That's that's too conservative from a, if we're looking at safety things, but but we need to we need to both recognize that. So so I think what we kind of arrived at was. Um, you gotta you gotta follow what what your funding source and consistency of your program says, and 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 know that that might not be the the fully correct answer. And then let let me and others like me and you and and um, others that are interested in this work on the back end to hopefully change these messages in in the future. And yeah. Do I don't you, know. And, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, I'm thinking about some other food that's been in the news lately, um, food that was left at room temperature. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know where you're going. Which, which was also discussed on uh, Dubai Friday, um, the last two episodes. Um, we'll link to the most recent one. And and in it, um, and I, I apologize because I'm, I'm a slacker, um, Merlin um, uh, repeatedly, apparently on both episodes, um, said that he wanted information about the safety of the foods that were left out um, for the Clemson University football players, the hamburgers and other foods that were left out um, in Washington, D.C. Did you Washington, pronounce that DC. correctly? I think hamburgers? I handburgers. Hamburger. Hamburger. Yeah, I, I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't find it to pronounce it correctly. But uh, yeah. So, and I had. I had what I thought was a pretty darn good Twitter thread, which again reminded me with thinking about pasta and pizza and stuff. Really good Twitter thread um, about the safety. I think it was, I mean, I wrote it, but I thought it was a pretty good Twitter thread uh, I, I where, I, where I sort of laid out my logic and my arguments as to which foods I would and wouldn't eat, uh, with the salads being the lowest risk and then, um, or the highest risk, rather the least, the ones I would least likely eat. And then French fries and pizza as being the ones that were, uh, of a lower risk in my mind. And, and, but, but again, the bottom line is they have probably all tasted terrible, uh, within, you know, cause cold fast food. And they talked about this on the podcast on Dubai Friday, but cold fast food is terrible. But, um, uh, you know, it's probably still safe uh, after two hours. It's probably even safe after four hours, which is probably the outside window. And there's been a, a whole lot of analysis about where they could have bought the food. And it turns out that there's, you know, some of the restaurants are really close to the White House and other, others are further away. And somebody's done a whole, you know, f- uh, evaluation of how long it would take and, you know, speculation and blah, blah, blah. But the bottom line is even the worst case estimates uh, show that that food was at room temperature for four hours, at, maybe at the most. 
And so it's it's safe. But I mean, I mean, in my opinion, it would be safe to eat um, or no no See, higher risk than than, right. than when when you bought it. So, yep, but yep, but uh, but then but then to make the thread interesting, I said, well, okay, so let's assume it's twenty four hours later, forty eight hours later. Which foods do you eat? Which foods do you not eat? And I and I and I, uh, I opined. Yeah, I liked I liked your thread. We're going to link to your thread. Um, the the discussion. So that someone had done a really like in depth, as you men- mentioned, um, uh, look at you know how far things were and transport. And to me, none of that matters because I that in in, in any case scenario, I can't imagine that they're not coming in hot boxes. That they're being held above one thirty five for that entire transport even if it wasn't a shopping cart on the DC Metro um, at rush hour, which was one of the options of getting it there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think they're like, I, and I, I say that from, from experience. I've mentioned a few times that I uh, play, um, uh, you know, one of my conflicts of interest is that I play semi-professional hockey for a team that's sponsored by Chick-fil-A. Um, semi-pro? One, it's semi-pro? Yeah. You know why it's semi-pro, Don? They, after every um, game, uh, we get free chicken sandwiches. Uh, <laughs> that makes it semi-pro. Okay. I, I have to declare my conflict. Um, and, uh, so it's, uh, so, so someone is responsible for picking up sandwiches, uh, before our games, which are sometimes at 11 o'clock at night. So, uh, we may go to, to Chick-fil-A at like nine and get, uh, 15 chicken sandwiches and they sit in a, uh, less than hygienic, uh, room and, and a dressing room. But, um, Chick-fil-A and um, almost any place that you would get um, large catering orders have hot boxes. And the Chick-fil-A ones that we have are plug-in ones. So we plug in this box that keeps everything nice and toasty. And I have on multiple occasions to settle uh, uh, bar bets, uh, brought a thermometer to the dressing room to check the temperature of our chicken sandwiches. And they are always above 135 degrees um, Fahrenheit. So I, to me, the transport issue isn't even the thing. Once it's sitting out on the table, maybe it's there for an hour. But as you said, even at worst case scenario of four hours, um, it's a real, it, it's no riskier than it was when they made them. And the biggest risk is, in my mind, that there was a food handler that had norovirus. <laughs> that prepared well, them. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. If we're talking about risk, which is which is going to be independent of how long um, the the food would would sit at room temperature. Right? Exactly, exactly. And and Don, we are talking about risk because that's what we do. Uh, <laughs> um, so good, uh, good stuff. Good, good. Uh, nice, a nice segue uh, into uh, where we were going. Let's go. Let's talk about let's talk about this one. So speaking of this is uh, leftover safety talk. Um, this is uh, from um, uh, Deep Borscht. Um, hey, Dr. Don, Dr. Ben, longtime listener, first-time caller. After listening to FST 173, I have a few lingering questions about hot holding and high-risk foods. I am uh, having catering for my wedding. I'm unable to make, take food home as leftovers due to, quote, food safety concerns. If my cooked to 74 degrees Celsius chicken breast is held above 60 degrees C, this is uh, clearly deep borscht is coming from a um, metric company mm-hmm, country, mm-hmm. Uh, and is out for about two hours from the time it's cooked to dinner service is over, are there any concerns with cooling it for consumption the following day? In the Alberta food regulation, no OPSEC uh, needed here, uh, high-risk food must be stored, displayed, and transported below 4 degrees C or above 60 degrees C. Section 27 um, notes that food was previously served cannot be reserved. (coughs) Sorry, I had the cough button there. 
If it is a low-risk food, free of contamination would serve to prevent contamination. Would cooked chicken be a high-risk or low-risk food item? Will we uh, have other food items, or we will have other food items, such as macaroni and cheese, salads, dinner rolls, pickles, and gravy that we will also like as leftovers, except maybe the salad because soggy soggy salad is gross? True that. As long as the side dishes are out for no more than a few hours, would there be any impediment for safe consumption the following day? I have a secondary question regarding canning borscht. It is (laughs) – yeah, this is my favorite part. It is maybe a few tablespoons of salt and around four liters of vegetables and a carton of vegetable stock. If it is heated to boiling, placed in clean canning jars and the lids are sealed, is this going to be shelf-stable, refrigerator-stable? What if there is cream in the borscht and the process above was repeated? Do I need secondary sterilization boiling steps to ensure safety? Um, and, and then, uh, so I will come back to deep borscht, but, uh, I do want to, uh, note this part. My fan fiance and I enjoy listening to your show. She was skeptical at first, aren't they? All? Uh, but now gives me, uh, the, um, the stuff when I try to eat raw flour huh. and saw the light, the cooking meat with the thermometer. Thank you. Keep up the wonderful podcast Signed, deep borscht. So, Go, you go ahead and uh, and handle the wedding leftovers, and I'll tackle the borscht. Sounds good. So um, I actually used a computer model for this. So I went to the Combase website and looked at perfringence predictor. I plugged in some permissive um, salt content and uh, water uh, and uh, pH values that would be appropriate for chicken. And basically said, okay, uh, let's assume it starts off at 60 degrees C. And thank you for using uh, Celsius because that's how it combates. It's a UK product, so it's all C, so I didn't have to do any conversion. So thank you for that. Um, uh, plug in 60 degrees C and then plugged in different amounts of time to get down to 15 degrees C, which is basically when Clostridium perfringens stop, stops growing. And basically, if you get it through that 60 to 15 window in about three hours, um, you're okay. And by okay, I mean less than one log increase increase in clostridium perfringens so an order of magnitude increase and again for I won't I won't let this go on and on but but that's the experts agree that that is a very uh, conservative amount of growth to allow especially for an organism like perfringens so there's probably a built-in safety factor there so so three hours to get it below 15 uh, is fine and so um, you know again it's you, you, you can manage that risk well um, in my opinion I think that the macaroni and cheese and the gravy are about the same risk level as chicken just because of the nature of the food. Um, uh, salads, as Deep Borscht points out, salads would be gross, um, and, and I agree, and probably about about the same risk. Um, you might have some other organisms that might be there that might also grow, uh, but they're not going to grow as fast as perfringens. So if you're controlling the perfringens risk, you're controlling other things. Um, pickles, I would say less risky just because of the pH. Um, and then rolls, uh, dinner rolls are going to be the lowest risk of all. Those those should be essentially uh, shelf-stable, although they might, they might go uh, stale. Um, and I have some thoughts on the borscht too, but let's hear what you have to say. Okay. So, um, with the, with the borscht, I looked up a little bit of, um, uh, of borscht recipes. And so there's, there's kind of a whole bunch of different, um, uh, different things out there. And what I was really looking for was to get a sense of, um, what the pH might be. And what are we talking about? A 
a high acid soup. And, um, I can tell you from eating, uh, consuming borscht, uh, when I was in, uh, Russia, uh, not colluding a couple of years ago, um, with, uh, with Callie Neal, uh, neither of us were colluding. Uh, well, that's the, what, that's what a not colluder would say, man. <laughs> you're right. You're right. No collusion, no Russian borscht collusion. Um, show title. Uh, and, I, I, I it's almost definitely not a high acid high acid food. So what we're talking about is is canning a soup with uh, with vegetables. And there is actually a little bit of of info um, on on this. And so what deep borscht talks about is a process of um, so I'll, I'll, I'll tackle deep borscht um, uh, recipe real real quick here. Um, it may have a, tea, a few teaspoons of salt for around four liters of vegetable and a carton of vegetable stock. Basically, the salt doesn't matter. It's salt is there for taste. You need to get to a much higher concentration for the salt to start kicking in as being uh, protective against uh, pathogen growth. So we're looking at a bunch of vegetables and a carton of vegetable stock um, heated to boiling. If I was to follow this process of heated and clean canning jars and the lids are sealed um, through boiling water bath, we're, we're looking at a pretty nasty mix of uh, potential for um, uh, creating the right environment for um, Clostridium botulinum growth and toxin formation. The second question of, uh, so is it going to be shelf stable following that recipe? No. Refrigerator stable? Yes. Um, but I would, and I'll, I'll go down the, the food keeper app uh, path on this and talk about the food code. I would say we're just looking at um, seven days if your refrigerator is is below 41 degrees Fahrenheit and you've cooled that product properly. Um, so if you're making a whole bunch of this soup, um, you really want to make sure that you're cooling it uh, quickly and getting it down um, below 41 degrees within um, – we, below 70 degrees within the first two hours and below, down below 41 degrees within the next four hours for a total of six hours. So um, – but let me, let me give you another alternative, Don. Um, to, to your answer. And that is, um, there is, and I'm going to shoot you, um, a recipe from the national center for home food preservation right now, um, about soups. So, um, this is how to can soups, vegetable, dry bean, pea, meat, poultry, or seafood soups can be canned. The directions are used for ingredients that are already have separate canning recommendations for those foods. So, um, basically what, what we're talking about is if you're making soup, um, with vegetables, um, using a pressure canner and processing pints for 60 minutes, um, at 11 pounds of pressure or 75 minutes for, for quarts. And so the, the idea here is you are really not canning the soup. You're canning all the vegetables, um, that are in it. And so you're trying to can it for sort of the worst case um, scenarios. So um, the procedure here is to cook vegetables um, as described for a hot pack for each cup of dried beans or peas, and there's none in this. Add three cups of water, boil two minutes, remove from heat, soak for an hour, heat to boil, and drain. Um, combine solid ingredients with meat, broth, tomatoes, or water, cover and boil for five minutes. Do not thicken it. So the question that Deep Borscht said, what if I use some cream in the borscht? That may end up thickening it a little bit. So I would add the cream afterwards um, and uh, follow the, the recipe that we're going to link to in show notes. Right. And by add afterwards, you mean add on serving. 
Yes, sorry. Because you, you sterilize it in the can, and then if you opened it up to right. put the cream in, that would defeat that purpose. So, yeah, but so, and to Deep Borscht's original question, um, could I make this by uh, heating by boiling, placing in clean canning jars if the lids are sealed? Um, is it going to be shelf stable? No. <laughs> like, yeah. don't do no. that, right? Because that, that. that would be not in compliance with uh, what's recommended on the National Center for Home F- Food Preservation. So you, you basically, you cannot do um, like a boiling water bath uh, canning. You have to use, you have to do pressure canning. Um, if he wanted to refrigerate it, I would say, yeah, sure, you could refrigerate it and then, again, use within a couple of days. Yep, yep, absolutely. Get, you, get yourself a, um, a uh, uh, pressure canner. They're, they're, they're not, uh, they're not super expensive. And I use mine once a year for stuff like this, actually once a year. And I say that it's probably the last three years I haven't used it, but I did make a bunch of tomato sauce, um, a few years ago when we had like a ridiculous amount of tomatoes out of our garden and that's, but I, I use the pressure canner cause the, I like the caramelized taste a little bit better, but if I was making borscht, this is what I would use. But, but here's the thing, Ben, if you were to go home and you were to take that pressure canner, um, out of the cupboard where it is and place it in the middle of the kitchen floor, would it spark joy? It would. It would, <laughs> it would? Okay, joy. cool. All right. Just, would, just yeah, checking, just would, checking. Yeah. But if I was to take the, um, many of the other kitchen gadgets <laughs> that, I, that I have and place it there, I, it they would almost definitely not, uh, spark joy. Um, but all the pressure, pressure canning that I will be doing probably from here on out, will be down in, in the kitchens that are directly below me. Boom. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Which totally spark joy. And that will spark joy. Cause uh, we'll do, we'll do a video version of, uh, of deep borscht question. May it may spark uh, uh, more than joy if you connect that uh, orange wire to that black wire the wrong way. <laughs> you know what oh I'm saying? God. Oh, good call. It's all to be sparking more than joy. Um, all right. So I got I like this this one. I'm gonna skip a little bit ahead. This is from Deep Flame. Um, Deep Flame writes us and says Hi, a friend recently sent me a video of him, quote, delaying his milk from spoiling. He lives in Singapore, and the video was of him opening up and using his milk next to a gas flame. The video was probably 90% probably ninety percent a joke. But I was wondering if using that kind of ad hoc aseptic te- technique where both trained as lab scientists would do anything um, uh, to, to the rate you'd expect the milk to spoil at. Um, I don't think it was UHT milk, but it would, but it would have been pasteurized. Um, thanks for your time and your, and your podcast. And so do you want to, you want to tackle this one? Yeah, this is a good one. So this, this gave me flashbacks to, uh, food, food micro, uh, one-on-one. Um, so basically for those of you that don't know, and we'll try to find something to, to link to this. So basically when you are working in a microbiology laboratory, you have to have what's called aseptic technique, uh, where you don't contaminate yourself or the work, um, with the environment. And so one of the things that you're supposed to do, and I'm making hand gestures here, you can't see it on the podcast, but I, you're supposed to do is you remove the cap from the test tube and then you take the lip of the test tube tube, and you hold it over a Bunsen burner. And the idea here is that you heat up the gas in the end of the test tube and it it, it expands and it can't expand down into the tube. So it basically expands out the top. And the idea of that that process is that you're pushing air away from the top of the test tube so that any net air flow, which would contain bacterial spores or dust particles with bacterial cells, is moving out of the tube instead of into the tube. Um, would this have an actual practical benefit? Um, no, I think it's a hilarious, uh, goofy thing to do to, to goof around with your with your yeah. food micro friends. But the actual benefit 
to the shelf life of that product, I would say is is minimal. Um, if it's a, especially if it's not UHT, right? If it's just regular pasteurized, it's going to be have it's going to have microorganisms in it, and so the flaming aspect um, is going to do very very little. If it was UHT, you might have um, some benefit there, but then you have to trade off like, okay, well now, so am I going to light? Uh, the stove every time I want to do this, and then what's the container made out of? Because it's not a glass test tube, which won't catch on fire. If I had to flame the cream for my coffee every time I made coffee, I, w- I would wager the net benefit, the net the net change in risk would be that the, the, I would have a greater risk of having a, a plastic or uh, or a cardboard fire in my kitchen because I got too close to the flame, or 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 I spilled um, uh, half and half out into the into the burner on the stove, and that would be a mess I'd have to clean up. So I, I would say. Good for laugh points, but probably not a, a real benefit uh, to that practice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, with you, nothing to add. Um, <laughs> you, I mean, you answered that question perfectly. Uh, all right, I want to talk about overnight chicken co- uh, cooking in a pot. All right, all right. So, oh yeah, this is a good um, one too. Yeah. yeah, this is this is a good one. So this is from the Washington Post a uh, week and a half ago, um, an article by Sarah Franklin uh, titles Overnight Chicken in a Pot Has Become the Savior of Our Weeknight Cooking. Um, and so, it, you know, basically it's it's about um, being able to, um, a, you know, uh, plan for cooking chicken in a pot. And here I'm going to go through the recipe. So one three to three and a half pound whole chicken. Uh, giblet packed removed if there is one kosher salt freshly ground black pepper six cups of water more is needed step one rinse the chicken so wash the chicken right under cool water um blah 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 we'll talk about that one in a second step two when you're ready to be cook begin cooking position a rack in the lower third of the oven preheat the oven to 450 degrees put the chicken in a dutch oven um roast uncovered for 30 to 45 minutes and here's what here's the money here's the payoff don mm. next step is um, uh, uh, remove the pot from the oven, leave the uh, oven door ajar, reduce the temperature to 200 degrees, add your six cups of water to the pot, um, and cover tightly, reduce the oven or return to the oven and slow roast undisturbed with the oven door closed for six to eight hours. So what we have here is a 200 degree oven for six to eight hours, um, with a, um, uh, a, a bunch of water, um, around, um, the chicken. Um, initially I look at this, I'll take a stab at this, at this first I initially. And I think, I don't know. I wonder what it's like. The more that I think about it though, I think what's really happening with this, with this, um, Dutch oven, 200 degree with a bunch of water in the oven. If the, if the liquid in the water is getting hot enough, it's really just a slow cooker chicken. Um, and this is going directly into the file of things in the next month that we're going to cook in the kitchens, <laughs> with, um, with a data logger in it to find out because I don't, I don't know, but I, I don't think this one is as bad as the let's roast a Turkey in an oven at 200 degrees with the, with the door ajar, which is something that we talked about back around Thanksgiving. This is really just a long time, low temperature, um, you know, Dutch oven roast. And we could test this. We, I, we can get data on this. 
What do you think? Um, yeah, so this is an article uh, from the Washington Post, and we we will link we will link to the article. Um, I would say so. My my concern. So there are some food safety concerns which your research will will address. I have other cons. I, I just the idea of leaving something on your stove with, especially if you have a gas stove like we do in our house. Um, that just seems dangerous to me, um, and, and and that may not be logical or rational, but I just I worry about the light, the gas going out, and then your house filling with gas, or I worry about starting a fire, or you know. Uh, so, oh, there's all yeah, yeah. There's all that. Um, yeah, so yeah, that, yeah. yeah that, that 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 is all. That those are all things that I have I have concerns about. I think if you're using a crock pot um, and it's plugged in, I think that those device there are, again there and there's risks with those devices as well. I think, but they they also have some built-in safety features and things like that. So I. Um, yeah, and two two hundred uh, two hundred degrees. It seems is, low, right? It seems, it seems low, right? Yeah. It seems low, and then again, I worry about. Yeah, we just worry about what happens if things go go wrong. But I mean, it's you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I love that people are interested in cooking. <laughs> right, right, right. But well, I yeah, I I I I'm I gives me an uneasy feeling. But I but I think that that is a that is a feeling, right? That is not that is not rational and scientific. Um, you know, so I would I would welcome data from your kitchen on this. Yeah, yeah, that, and that's why we have the kitchens. Or that's what, yeah. Um, I want to, one of the things that you uh, reminded me of is uh, about a year ago, there was all this um, uh, chaos uh, around crockpot cooking because Mm -hmm. uh, of a a show that I do not watch that uh, that Danny watches, This Is Us. Uh, One of the characters, uh, spoiler alert if you're following along on Hulu, one of the characters (laughs) dies, sorry, um, and um, the crockpot sets on fire and he's asleep, I think, and it sets the house on fire and he dies. Um, and so Crockpot had to create a Twitter uh, handle or a Twitter, yeah, Twitter handle, just talking about how it's okay because there are safety things in place. Um, and they tweeted, "Don't worry, you can still make your favorite comfort foods in your Crockpot with confidence." Hashtag Crockpot. Hashtag Crockpot. <laughs> we want to assure you that we rigorously test our products for safety. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you bring up. Uh, you know, real logistical points, um, on this and, um, not to belabor stove safety talk, but that those are things that are, you can't parse out from the things that we talk, that we talk about. Um, but, uh, data, right. So, so what, why don't, why don't we do this? We'll set up something where we, um, make these chickens. Let's let, how many do you think I need to make Don? What, like, so if I was to, this, this is something that we haven't talked about and maybe it's best in, in an after show, but do you think if I do like, I've got, I've got five different, um, or four different, uh, stoves, right. And if I do this three, three times, three replicates in each stove. Now I've got 15 replicates. Do you think that's enough for me to answer this question? Oh yeah. Or do I need, or do I need like 70? You no, no. I would say, let's, I would say certainly that's, that's more than I would do. Um, I would but say at I'm least, not a slacker. So that's, I mean, that's <laughs> well, and I, I do like the idea of uh, multiple stoves, right. Yeah. And multiple replicates in the stove. Um, and, and if you, if you do both of those things and then you have the time temperature, uh, profiles, you, you will, when you look at that, uh, fifth, I think you said five stoves, three replicates per stove. Yeah. Um, if you look at that, you can get a pretty easy, 
sense uh, with with continuous time temperature monitoring, you can get a pretty good sense of the variability of that process, right? You can you can tell whether it's wildly variable or whether it's relatively controlled. You can see the rep to rep difference. You can see the stove to stove difference. So I I would say as a starting point, yes, that would be fine. If you see a lot of variability, well, now you've got to rethink that. But but yeah, you and you'll learn a lot from doing those fifteen experiments. All right, we're gonna do it. This is uh, th- this is on the list uh, by the end of February. Well, uh, I, it, uh, here's how much this is going to cost: the cost of um, 15 ch- chickens. <laughs> That's it. And then we'll uh, I'll answer this question. This will be in for this will be for follow up. Oh, speak, speaking of follow up, I don't remember what it was in reference to, but there was some discussion about um, hot holding. Uh, I think on the last uh, podcast, and the, it was uh, basically uh, uh, covered in a 2010 issue, uh, 2010 CFP issue uh, from Council Three. It was issue number eleven, and I have no idea why I put this in here as follow up, but um, this was follow up follow up on uh, hot holding. So. Awesome. Yep. So we'll link to that. If you want more information on hot holding, look to our show notes on hot holding. Uh, um, so there was, there was one other thing that I wanted to get to. You might have some other stuff. Um, and this is just a, a, sh- a short one, but, um, yesterday, uh, there was, um, a recall of some pet foods that was made by Woody's Woody's pet food deli. Um, and, uh, the, it was a raw Turkey pet food from Woody's pet food deli that was linked to, uh, that had some salmonella contamination and that was linked to human illness. And I, I'm, this is one of the ones that I, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about this on the podcast in, in the past, but it's one that every time this comes up, I'm, I'm constantly kind of interested in it. So one, um, we, how raw, the idea of raw pet food is kind of interesting. Um, I'll, I went to, um, I, I have a, a friend here, Megan Jacobs, who's in our, um, uh, college of veterinary medicine. And she and I get together for lunch every, every once in a while and talk about stuff. Uh, she was at Kansas state, um, when Doug was there and she and I have known each other for, for a long time. She has interest in, in pet foods and pet animal interactions with, with people and how that leads to foodborne illness. And she's also interested in goats. And we did some work on, um, uh, uh, petting zoos and, and animal interactions at, at, um, lots of different events and, and put on some extension workshops for folks in that, in that area. But one of the things that, that she and I are meeting with a, a student about later this week is raw pet food. And, um, I was, I took my dog to a pet store to, um, grind and cut his nails. Cause he, I don't want him to think that, that I give him any pain. I will gladly let someone else give him that, that pain. Um, and he can associate them with that, uh, terrible experience and not me. Um, but as I was walking around the, the pet, the pet food store, there are lots of like refrigerated cases, raw type foods, um, that are, that are there now, but are saying things like lightly cooked and ready to eat. So I, I'm assuming in the pet store that I went to, there aren't, there aren't raw foods, but this one made me think that, that there are, I mean, I, we've, we've talked, um, about deep, um, you know, deep, deep bra, deep pet food called us deep kibble, um, sent us a message a while ago. We did talk a little bit about raw, uh, pet food. And here's another example. And what, what I'm interested in here is how did this, how did the individual get 
the salmonella? How did the human get the salmonella? Is this handling the raw pet food and not washing hands? Is it having raw pet food leading to um, shedding of the salmonella in the dog's poo and then that moving around someone's home? Or is it a consumption of raw um, a raw pet food uh, on behalf of the human? And I don't think we have the answers to any of that um, right now. Um, it, what it says is the state health department um, uh, said its interview of the stricken person um, that it was regularly fed to the pet in the household, but we don't know. You know, the pet also tested positive for salmonella, but we don't really know exactly how it got to the to the person. So, uh, going back to the the initial question about things that we hope and hope to answer in our kitchens, we're actually having um, some discussions. Meg and I are talking this week about um, bringing people into our kitchens and having them like just fill up bowls of pet food like they would feed their dog and see what they do. Do they wash their hands afterwards? If it's, is it different if it's kibble? Um, is it different if it's raw as they cut it open? How do they actually do it? Where does, what do they do to the countertop afterwards to, to better answer some of these questions? So raw pet foods. Yeah. And, and, and we have, you know, I did a little search on our website, uh, and we have talked about pet food a surprising amount of the time, uh, uh, uh more than a half a dozen times we've talked about pet food on this podcast. So, yeah. um, it is a, it is a, a topic that comes up, uh, on a regular basis. So, um, yeah. So I, do you, um, so this message says, don't reveal my name or my message on the air. Um, but basically, um, they've been following our podcast and it's amazing work and, um, they are a company that provides quality monitoring software for helping food and beverage brands mitigate, manage and improve operations. Um, and, uh, they would like to come and talk about, um, uh, this on the podcast. Yeah. I mean, we should totally have them. So, uh, yeah, call us. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, it sounds like uh, that it's like twerking, except for food safety. So it's yeah, it's food safety, food safety twerking. Um, it sounds it sounds exciting. Yeah, so we probably um, won't have them on. Um. I it is my <laughs> my favorite is that, and I will I will read this quote. Um, quote amazing work, and this is in relation to the podcast. Uh-huh. I truly believe it is important to t- keep talking about food safety and health. We do to too. That's why we keep doing the podcast. Yeah, it is yeah. amazing. It's amazing. It's, it's yeoman's work. Yeoman's that, work. I don't know. You, you know that? It's a cliche, right? I, lo- I love that expression. Yeoman's yeah. work. What's a yeoman? I, think I don't it's, know. It's probably problematic. The yeoman's, I'm sure, were not, were probably not good people. Um, <laughs> I think you're thinking of the Romans. And maybe. They're a member of a social class in, in England uh, in the United States, and it is also a military term, oh. according to Wikipedia. Oh, look at that. And they're never wrong. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Hey, so so this is one that I have gotten. A, a, it came in and listener feedback uh, recently, and it comes up a lot. So um, so uh, so this this listener I'm going to call Deep Soil. He says, uh, "We'll love the show." See, here here's the thing: if you if you want us to to read your message on the air, it's best to start with telling us how much you love the show. <laughs> love the show. Excited when it pops into my feed. Thank you. Uh, based on your recommendations, I was much safer when prepping a belated Thanksgiving turkey last week. Um, so that's very very cool. Um, but he, uh, listener says, uh, I didn't have the opportunity. I didn't have an appropriately sized dishwasher safe plastic cutting board. I used my granite countertop, making sure to clean the entire area with a Lysol cleaner when I was done. 
Uh, when I started this email, I didn't have a question, but I do now. The Lysol cleaner, as advertised, says killing 99.9% of viruses and bacteria. And then it goes on to list Salmonella, Enterica, E. coli, 157H7, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, et cetera, et cetera. Does this mean that if there's a 1,000 Salmonella bacteria, it kills 99 999 of them? Or does it mean of all the different types of viruses and bacteria in the world, 99.9% of them will be affected by this spray? And that is a fantastic question. It's one that I get a lot, and it's actually the first answer. And so what it means is when they do these uh, these basically time kill, what they call in the industry time kill studies, they measure the amount of time it takes to kill a certain number, and they test it against those organisms, right? Salmonella, E. coli, Pseudomonas, Staph, uh, avian influenza, et cetera, et cetera. And it kills 99.9%. And so, and then the listener continues, if that's the case, is a three-log reduction even, even a meaningful reduction? And I would say it is, right? It's better, it's better than a two-log reduction, which is what you get from hand-washing uh, generally, and it's, it's not as good as a four-log reduction. But yes, there is a benefit to these products. And the, now the, the wrinkle is that the, these are regulated, um, these, these claims are regulated by the EPA because these things are basically treated as pesticides. And so what that means is that if you are going to make a label claim when that's what this is, uh, that label claim has to be by a specifically prescribed method. And so the, and the method may not be actual use. So it's not like they, they actually took uh, turkey and inoculated it with salmonella and cut it on a granite countertop, granite countertop and then sprayed it uh, with this, this compound. It's used in, in, a, in a laboratory situation. So um, yeah, so, but thanks for the question. This is a, a great question. This, this comes up a lot. Uh, I've been asked this numerous times um, uh, over the, the course of uh, my time at Rutgers, and, and it's, it's good that that, uh, it's good that we can get the word out. Yeah, and um, on uh, on Lysol, um, it's you know it's a it's a brand name. I just want to get into what the compound is. Mm. Sometimes it's an alcohol based uh, uh, cleaner, and other times it's a quaternary ammonia based cleaner, um, mm. depending on the product. And some they have, all of them, from what I can sort of gather, they all talk about ninety nine point nine percent. So we're looking at three log reductions, but um, it also may um, you know that that what you use it on may, um, you know, may matter. Um, so if I look at other household cleaners, I try to stay away from the chlorine based, um, cleaners. If I'm using a wood cutting board and obviously this is granite, it's not really, um, applicable to, um, to, uh, deep soils question, but, um, it, you know, if I'm using wood, I try to stay away from chlorine and I use quaternary ammonia or um, alcohol-based cleaners, uh, cleaner sanitizers as, as much as I can because the um, uh, chlorine base gets really um, – those free, free chlorine, chlorine ions get uh, um, grabbed up pretty quickly with the organic matter in, uh, that, the, that's in the wood. So – Okay, uh, and I got uh, two more that I want to deal uh, with, and th- this one comes from uh, Deep Flipper, and uh, so I will I will read his question, and then I'd like to get your answer because you're kind of responsible for this. He says, "Context: I just saw this retweet of Professor Chapman talking about the difficulty of decontaminating cooking utensils after a flood, and we will link to your tweet." Um, uh, he's and so the Deep Flipper continues. I dropped a plastic cooking utensil behind our stove in late 2017. <laughs> this, <Yeah. laughs> this was the perfect tool for. 
for flipping pancakes in nonstick pans. I was dismayed to discover that it was a discontinued model. If you don't mind buzz marketing discontinued products, this was a Rubbermaid 1972. Um, uh, and although we, we bought several would-be replacements, none were quite as good. Um, and I have to say that I, we will link to my uh, favorite flipper, which is uh, basically a fish spatula. And, and we, have, we own several of these. Uh, and it is my favorite uh, go-to device for flipping eggs in a pan. Um, okay. Um, late 2018, I managed to slide it out from under the stove. I hand-washed it thoroughly first using paper towels and dish soap to remove big stuff without unduly contaminating our dish brushes. <laughs> Then I used the dishwasher safe plastic scrub brush and soap dish. I scrubbed in what felt like I scrubbed it what felt like thoroughly, paying extra attention to the spots where there was damage to the finish from the little melting. Um, I then ran the brush and the spatula through the dishwasher with our usual detergent and the sanitized button lit. It got one more regular pass through the dishwasher on the normal cycle before returning to our arsenal. The conditions under the stove were dry, but there was definitely dust and mouse poop under there. Have I endangered my family by not bleaching? Ben, what is the answer? No, I mean, I thought, I think Deep Flipper did an amazing job here. Maybe even better than I would have. <laughs> better than home. I would have done, certainly. Yeah, this is, this is good. And I, and here's, here's where yuck factor versus safety yep. comes in, yep. right? Yep. It's like, absolutely. This thing was stuck behind there for some time. There might be some mice running around, maybe some mice urine on it. You want to do what you can to get you rid of the yuck factor and that you want to put it back into circulation. Um, I, it, in in a fu- funny kind of chuckle, we all probably have our own favorite flippers or t- utensils. There is one orange one that that I use. It, I, it's the only one that I go to. And in fact, we have three or four of them in my home. That um, Danny is is like a um, she doesn't care. She'll use any flipper. And if I'm, it, it doesn't matter what it is. I love this one. It's like a rubber one. It's got the right like. Um, I don't know the right bounce to it. So I totally understand. Like if I had lost that, that flipper and it was discontinued, I'd also be looking for, for mine and, and would return, you know, a year later to, or a year, year plus later to, to find it. Um, but uh, deep flipper, I think you did a great job. Yeah, and I will say too, um, if you want that Rubbermaid 1972 spatula, um, you can get these. You can buy these on Etsy for only thirty dollars. So uh, there's, <laughs> there you go. So there you go. Um, yeah, and, and I, I'm looking for the. I'm looking for the one. Um, uh, yeah, let me let me let me find the one that I that I like. Um, yeah, so let's see. Oh, I, I'm not finding it. Um, I, I'm finding a Fisher Space Pen. I'm finding uh, books about fish. Oh, that's really weird. There's not, there's not one. Um, huh. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll, uh, I think it's the, uh, Mafter Borgat Exo Glass Petchen Spatula Gray. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, uh, all right. So one, uh, one more bit of, uh, feedback. And this is, um, from a longtime, um, emailer, uh, Stutblart, um, uh, he says, uh, so he links to this uh, uh, image thing, uh, Im- imager web uh, uh, p- picture that says um, this is a, uh, a deli ham product. And it says, uh, and it has the label. And then it says, wash tub before use, gluten free. Um, and it turns out that this is a, a tub that is being sold, a plastic tub uh, that is being sold. 
um, for apparently for reuse. This is from uh, the HEB company, and we, we know folks that uh, work there or, or used to work there. And it is a Black Forest ham product that is a deli meat uh, sliced in a tub. Um, the tub itself does not mention washing it or reusing it, but the but the deli meat inside is in a vacuum-packed plastic container that says wash tub before use. Have you ever heard of this? No, and I don't – this could be just me missing – well, it's not a product that I think I've purchased much before, but I don't think I would ever look on the back and look at the at the label. So it, it may be there. This might be more common um, than than you think or than we than we think. Um, I but, wonder, but the, but the message is not on the weird. tub, right? No, it's, it's on the pa- it's on the packaging inside the tub. It's it's. So uh, here's what I think yeah. it is. Okay. All right. So I think this product is. I buy these prepackaged bags that are inside a tub. I open up the prepackaged bags and I use the tub as the storage container. So, so I'm oh. throwing away the ba- so so I think the message is wash this before you use it as a storage container for this prepackaged ham that you're going to remove from the bag because the ba- the tubs themselves are are not like, you know, they're not sterilized or coming in um okay. My phone is currently ringing. I better. See that. Yeah. Um, so uh, you, you know what I'm saying? Like there may be okay. it may be to, so I think that's what it's for. I don't think I've ever seen it, but uh, before. But that would be that's my guess. It but, is to to rin, really it's about rinsing anything that might be in that tub, um, but beforehand. And I wonder, like now that we talk a little bit about it, I wonder if this is has a. Um, uh, if there if there's a listeria potential issue here, so I use this tub that's not sealed, right? Um, that may have post packing, uh, post dropping in the bag contamination, and now I'm opening up this prepackaged um, meat and I'm storing it in here. And if there was any listeria that's floating around, I'm I'm putting it into the you know a a deli meat that if I store it well too long, I may, I may be adding to, to some contamination just like I would be if I was using a tub that was in my own home that was that, that I moved it to like a, a Tupperware container. Yeah. I, I just, I just think, I mean, and, and Stuplart was nice enough to send us a photograph of the label they have four words, wash tub before use. There's a more white space on that label. I mean, like, so thanks for letting me know that my ham is gluten-free, but you know, you could, you could, and, and that you could even make the little uh, part of the label bigger and tell me a little bit more about how you expect me to use this tub, you know, yes. like, um, yeah, it's, it's a, Ooh. it's an odd, it's an odd, odd thing. Or, um, the other thing is, um, Tell me that if I open this up, that I should use this this uh, this uh, ham once I open it within three or four days, be, because listeria, right? Like washing the tub. If I'm if I'm really looking for a food safety message, the washing the tub isn't isn't the most important one to me. Well, and I, we do have to say, and we won't share this because it's it comes from the email, not from a, a public uh, website. But uh, in the photograph of the top of the container, it says best if used by date shown. Once opened, use within seven days. Keep refrigerated. So, so there is that. 
but yeah, completely. Oh, and it, okay, I guess you know, and, and and now that I'm reading it a little more carefully, it's a club pack, right? So it has it has two 11 ounce packages, and so right. yeah, I guess I guess the idea is that you would buy this large quantity, and then you would, um, yeah, but it's just. I don't know. It's 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 it just doesn't just does it's not it's not just I mean and I thought I expect more of H E B. They're a pretty good, you know, food safety savvy company. It's just it's just very it's just just confusing messaging. And you know, if you give people confusing and we're look, we're two food safety experts, right? And we're, yeah, we're yeah. trying to parse what this message is, um, this advice to the consumer and we can't figure it out, right? And maybe maybe yeah. we're overthinking it, but it I don't know. The whole thing just seems kinda silly. But anyway, thanks to thanks to Stuplart for for reaching out and for sending us that message. Yeah. As always, uh, giving us good content. Yep. Cool. Well, uh, I think that's a show. I want to just say, I want to just uh, make a, a plug for uh, an article that I was not an editor for. Uh, looks like this was oh. edited by Andrew McBain. This is an article that appeared in Applied and Environmental Microbiology, and um, it says uh, droplet rather. And the title of the article, and we'll link to this droplet rather than aerosol-mediated dispersion, is the primary mechanism of bacterial transmission from contaminated hand-washing sink traps. And we've talked before about aerosols, uh, and this is an interesting article. I haven't read the whole thing but basically the idea is, is that you know when you when you splash water from a sink you can have aerosols but you can also have droplets and droplets are bigger than aerosols and it turns out that when you have a contaminated hand washing sink and you spray water um, most of the bacterial dispersion comes from droplets rather than aerosols and I just thought this was just a really nice little piece of work uh, not exactly food safety related because it's looking at, at hand washing sinks and hospitals I think is, is the, yeah healthcare is the angle but I just I just thought that it was just it's right in our wheelhouse, and so we should we should link to it. Yep, absolutely. Um, uh, the, and I thought it was uh, well, sort of well done um, as well. Just sort of how they how they set this experiment up. So yeah, cool. All right. Well, um, I think that's uh, I think I think that's a show. I think that's so, a show. I think so. Um, so be sure to uh, do your food safety twerk um, and uh, get get your. Um, Get your raw pet food, <laughs> I guess. No, I don't know. Uh, so and, check, and wash wash your hands, but uh, don't spray those droplets. <laughs> don't spray those droplets. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, go ahead and uh, as listeners re- review us and rate us on on the iTunes and stuff. Um, and uh, Don, I'll talk to you later. Bye bye. Bye bye.
Cool. All right. Yay, my voice held up, and I'm oh, yeah. feeling way better. It was only a little bit at the start, and you know, sometimes you just got to clear it. So I coughed a few times, but yeah, there was only one that you you let your finger off the mute too too early. But it's, it's I did. Fine. We'll we'll leave yeah. we'll leave it in there because you know, because yeah. it's it's all part of it. Yeah, what's in the show is in the show. Exactly. I learned that from um, Mark on the line. <laughs> so this one's yours. It is. And we all right. So let's look at. Next recording. Um, what? So since we pushed it a little bit, what does your? Yeah, that's not gonna work. What does the twelfth look like for you? Um, it looks good. I've got. I'm holding the afternoon for oh for um, Veronica for NeuroNerd. Oh, um, but well, that's okay. You- but uh, morning is good, and honestly, I mean, I I could I could just disappoint her. <laughs> well, more no, so so okay. Let's let's give it because my my morning is not great. Okay, so I was looking afternoon. So if you've okay. got something, yeah, yeah, no, what, what no, I'm just here's the thing. Uh, that's fine. What time? Um, like two. Sure. The other, um. The other option is uh, the fourteenth in the morning. Uh, yeah, and I'm not available. Okay. Or is this the fifteenth? Uh, the yeah, Fridays, Fridays are not good. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah the fourteenth. Um, so I'm I'm on this uh, Romaine um, task force group, and I'm supposed to go to Dallas, but I I can't because I've got to be on campus. Um, but I'm going to try to. I've, I've made myself. I said I'm going to make myself available on the phone if they have a phone connection. So um, I'm 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 not available. So um, but uh, we should talk uh, offline about the Romaine, yeah Romaine task force. Um, that sounds exciting. Uh, we should talk offline. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a, it's. A, I, I should, I should be careful what I say. So it's a, the, the, the I think the romaine industry has finally got religion. Not finally, but they, they're getting religion around that they need to solve this problem. Um, I just, I think that they're a little bit overambitious. But anyway, I know, I know uh, the folk, the folks that invited me uh, listen to the show, so I don't want to bash them too, too hard in the after dark. So, but yes, anyway, I will, um, I will be um, available on Friday or Tuesday, February twelfth. All right, and I only perfect. have to disappoint NeuroNerd a tiny bit because I'm just going to cancel just, one of the one of the time slots I'm holding for her. Cool. Well, and I think we we probably could go at like one thirty, but let's say two p.m. Okay, that's fine. Awesome. An afternoon one. Yeah, that'll be different. That will be okay. Cool. In done. Thanks, Don. Right, this one is mine. I sent you a couple of possible yeah. uh, show things in the text, so let me know if any of those work for you. I like I like them all. Um, I think, I think no borscht collusion is my favorite. Um, and, and I think we can find a good picture of borscht. That's, that's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. It'll be nice. It'll be a nice, uh, nice pick. So good. But either any of these are good. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, I, 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 my favorite is sparking more than joy. Um, but, but I think no borscht collusion is probably a better and, and would be a better image. So, and someone last week or last episode said that our, um, our titles, was this on Twitter somewhere that our titles are really good. Yeah. And that's, that's cause we just say funny things. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) 
Oh, awesome. All right. I will, uh, I will talk to you if not before. No, I'll probably talk to you before. We have writing but, buddies uh, before. So yeah. 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 February 12th, 2 PM. All right, be there. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.